Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Do you ever wish your parents could have raised you or treated you differently throughout your life? Do you find that you have the same recurring fights with your parents over and over since you were younger? Even if we had the greatest parents in the world, life is complicated and raising children is hard and so pretty much everyone ends up with some wounding around the dynamic we had with our mother and father. But here's the thing. The relationships we had with our earliest caregivers is what forms the framework of how we think and act in all relationships. The recurring issues we have with our parents generally mirror and parallel the recurring issues we have whenever and wherever there is friction with other people in our life. Because in general, how we do one thing is how we do everything. But that's actually really good news because whenever there's a problem, the highest leverage thing we can do is fix the problem at its source. Because resolving any problem at the source saves us from having to handle every far-reaching consequence that otherwise would have branched out from the source. And that's why doing inner game work on the dynamic we have with our mother and father is one of the highest leverage things we can do if we wanna grow ourselves into stronger, wiser, more self-actualized human beings. Working on healing our parental wounds is like going straight to the source of all our relationship friction. And you're in luck, because in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview relationship genius Annie Lala, whose teachings on healing parental wounds are some of the most tender-hearted and helpful of any I've ever heard from any place else in my entire life. Anyone who listens to my podcasts and videos regularly will recognize Annie Lala's name because Annie and her husband, Eben Pagan, are two of the people I quote from and refer to more than anyone. Together, they're probably the two humans who've had the biggest influence on my work as a teacher and a coach. And for anyone who wants to change their lives and relationships for the better, or who wants to help other people change their lives and relationships for the better in a way that actually works, Eben and Annie hold the gold standard for doing and teaching that. I feel incredibly lucky that over the years, they've become friends and mentors. I love them both beyond measure, and I'm super excited right now to share this interview, which is essentially Annie Lala giving a masterclass on how to heal our parental wounds. There's truly nobody better on earth to learn this from. So listen up, 
and take notes, and I hope you enjoy learning from this extraordinary human being as much as I do. Thank you so much for being here, and so excited to be talking about this topic with you because I've learned so much from you about this and really have brought it so deeply into my own life. It's a a delight to be here. I can't wait to dig into this. I don't really, we don't really talk about lineage stuff in our culture very often, so I'm excited. Yeah, this is a big deal for lesbians because a lot of us, when we come out, there's a lot of friction that comes from it. And not all of us are lucky for that to really ever go, lucky enough for that to ever really go away. Um, some -hmm. people, it, it just sort of stays really bad. Other people it's temporary, but when there's huge fights with our parents and mean things can be said, it's, those are scars. Yeah. So of all the people in the world, I'm so glad to be talking to you about this topic. Great. So if you had to pick, where would we start? Well, I'd start with when a child is born, they are hurled into reality and they don't even have a sense of what a relationship is because they were part of an entity. You know, when a mother is pregnant, her nervous system rewires to become an, a new organism that's a dyad and it's wired as one entity. So when this child is born, it doesn't have, have a sense of self yet. So it has to learn and develop its sense of otherness when it's juxtaposed with its mother's otherness, and that comes over time. But basically when the child's born, it's in relationship, similar to when it was in the womb. The child, is its nervous system is entrained with the mother's nervous system. Even across a room, they're talking to each other with coos and sounds. During the nighttime, babies and mothers talk back and forth. And so there's a relationship from the get-go. And this dance, this dynamic between the mother and the child sets an imprint for all future relationships, not just romantic, but the very definition of what relationship is, what is allowed, what is appropriate, what is expected, gets set up very early on. And so we'll start with the mother. We're talking about parental stuff, but we'll start with the mother because a lot of, not just lesbians, but people struggle with their mother wound. It's their first attachment figure. And so whatever was magnificent about that mother-child dynamic and beautiful and attuned and whatever was missing where the parent, you know, unbeknownst to her, didn't realize that she dropped the ball somehow or was unconscious. And so all those, the good and the bad, get imprinted on the child as the the glory and the guts of the attachment wound. And so since this is a, a defining feature of what relationship is at large for this new being, it influences everything you're ever going to do in your life. And so doing work on your dynamic with your mother and your father is the highest leverage work you can do in the personal growth, self-actualization game. Because if you can move one millimeter into the words of the empowered or the positive between what you have with your mom and your dad, you get miles and miles of benefit in your relationship with your family, your friends, and in particular your romantic partner. So it's a high leverage place to do work. I've said before, and my husband likes this quote, that the most important job you have in a romantic relationship is to be a fierce stand for your partner, having an empowered relationship with their parents. Having an empowered relationship with our parents is the highest leverage thing we can work on doing if we want to have better relationships with with all other humans, whether it's our family, whether it's our friends, whether it's our coworkers, whether it's our future partners. Yes. I love it. So what is the best place to start to, to start to form an empowered relationship? First to start with most people 
have some amount of conflict or drama or unease around the relationship with one or another parent. Um, there's a few lucky people out there who have the perfect life and were raised with amazing parents and don't have a lot of drama around it. But for the most part, we all have grumbles that we harbor around how our mom or our dad related to us. And usually with one more than the other. Because everyone makes mistakes, right? They were young probably when we were born. Exactly. And our parents, you know, love them, bless them. They had the cutting edge technology of the time and the psychology and their own research. And, you know, my parents never picked up a parenting book. Our house is filled with parenting books. I don't even know if my parents knew there were parenting books back then. So on some level, we're evolving and the whole game of parenting is evolving. But um, they're fallible humans who have their own struggles and their own shadows. And very often what hurts a child was not an intentional lapse in parenting. It was something the parent didn't even realize that they'd failed to do. It never even occurred to them. So where would we start? The first place I'd like to start is, as I was saying, just honoring and acknowledging that most people have somewhat fraught relationships with their parents. There's some things they don't bring up that are taboo, that they don't talk about, that gets shoved under the carpet. And I just want to normalize that and say that's normal. I had that with my parents. Evan's had that with his parents. And there's very infrequently I met someone that doesn't have some pain point around how they were raised. That's the first thing. The second thing is... A lot of people in the self-help world are trying to get us to forgive our parents, get that they were doing the best they can, um, make it okay that they were fallible. And I do want to get there. When I say empowered relationship with your parents, I do want to get to the place where you're not harboring a lot of ang anger, resent, and blame towards them. But you can't go there prematurely. You actually have to get in touch with the part of your inner child that is heartbroken that is still waiting for the ideal mommy and daddy to show up, that is hurt every time you see your parents and they're in, they unwittingly reinforce the wound that they had when you were a child. And so I, I just wanna make sure we don't prematurely try to do a- um, A bypass? Bypass, exactly. So what I like to do with my clients or with people that I'm working with is really give their inner young child a voice and make it okay for them to have a little grumble and a bitch rant about why mommy or daddy didn't feel, their love didn't feel complete to me without making the parents wrong. I just wanna give a voice to it and honor it and have it be witnessed and appreciated and validated because until those sentiments are um, acknowledged, we can't get to trans or forgiveness. So that's the first thing to do is to tune into, and a lot of people struggle with this. We love our parents. We want to be in rapport with our parents' magnificence. And so we can get very defensive, not just with other people, but with our own internal judgments towards our parents. And we don't want to dislike our mom or dad. It doesn't feel good. And so we can hide the places in ourselves where we actually felt let down, where we felt hurt, where we felt confused. And we just shove it on the carpet and we go, you know what, it's better left unsaid. My mom can't handle it. My dad can't handle it. And you don't, um, you never give those sentiments the microphone and an audience. And so that's the first thing I would want someone to do is to have access to those frustrations, to have someone listen and validate them. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense about having our inner child be validated. But there are so many different ways that we can tell ourselves stories. 
And some of them are really helpful and beneficial. And then some of them, we can just get caught in the same righteousness mental loop. Yeah. And so I would love to pause and hear what you have to say about how we let that inner child get validated with in a, in a way that really benefits us and isn't just getting us stuck in a negative mental loop that doesn't serve us. Okay. When someone is stuck in a negative mental loop that doesn't serve them, which is like a loop of complaint and resent, it's because they haven't been fully witnessed or validated to the furthest extent of that pain. That pain hasn't been listened to, to the end. It's not that they're having a fetish and they're, you know, just, um, wasting their own mental energy and time grumbling about a parent. It's, there's a heartbreak and a heartbreak that isn't witnessed by another human remains unhealed. And so I take that as an indicator that as a, as a coach, if someone seems to be stuck about bitching about their mom or their dad, that I want to get curious and investigate more deeply into the subtle nuances of their pain, more subtle and nuanced than perhaps even they had dared to go. And I lead them into those labyrinthine caverns of their own heartbreak. And I help them honor the dignity of them, map them and witness them as an appropriate response to the situation that they found themselves in. No matter how small it is, what causes one person's trauma doesn't cause another person. And so the tiniest thing could have lodged like a, like a piece of glass in skin from when they were young, some tiny interaction with their parent that they happened to be in a developmental window. They were formative. And then at that moment it broke their heart. And as a coach, as a friend, or as, as if someone is a therapist, just having someone in there with you in the curly cue of that heartbreak is enough to heal it in, enough to get you out of the loop. Just telling the story about it or some sort of um, bodily practice, a movement practice? Um, what, what, because I, I know I can retell stories, but I think what you're speaking, what you're pointing to is something more than just telling the story of what happened. Yes. So we get stuck in telling the story, but we don't often walk into the dark cavern of the feeling. And a feeling is a set of physical sensations in your body, just like the need to pee or an itch on your body. And most people, when they think about a feeling, they don't think about where my anger is. Is my anger in my chest, my shoulder blades, my throat, my belly? They know why they're angry. So what happens is we've got a feeling, which is a set of physical sensations in the body. And then we have a story about the feeling, which is your narrative, your explanation, your justification, your blame. Most people mistake the story about the feeling for the actual feeling. And they think talking about that feeling, that resent, that frustration is actually going to heal it. But what you actually have to do is go back to the place in your heart where it got broken and tune into the sensations in your body around that experience. From back then, not even what you're feeling now, but literally you're going backwards in time and feeling into how your little girl felt in that moment, what she was physically experiencing while she was standing there or sitting there. Yeah, sometimes I do it as a, um, I become a, like an attachment figure for my younger self and I empathize with the younger version of myself's feelings. But it's not just for going back in time because often a feeling from the past in our childhood gets arrested mid experience. 
So if you think of a feeling like a sine curve or like a wave on the ocean, it rises, 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 it crests, and it falls. Feelings, on average, the biochemical counterpart of a feeling in your body, the hormones, last no more than five to seven minutes. That's the length of a biochemical feeling. But sometimes the feelings from our childhood were so painful, so traumatic, and so um, terrifying that we literally disassociated from our body, went into some game in our head or thought or playing with our toys. We disassociated from our body right before it hit the crest of the feeling sense, the actual sensations. And that sine curve of a feeling never got completed. So it's arrested. And so when you get in a fight with your partner right now at this age, it takes you back to like the bookmark in where the feeling was left disassociated. And it's trying to complete. It's trying to finish. So you are going back in time, but in the present moment, you could be feeling the feeling, but to your nervous system, it's the same moment in time. It's an incomplete feeling and we need to get through it, breathe through it. You, you know what it kind of reminds me of is when I was a kid and I would climb up the diving board and then all of a sudden I got scared to jump off it. Yeah. And so it's as if our inner child is about to have an uncomfortable feeling, but she's stuck on that diving board saying, no, no, I don't want to jump. And we have to sort of coax her over it so she can, because it's not that bad. You'll, you'll splash in the water. You'll be fine as long as you know how to swim, assuming, right? Yeah. So just there. Yeah. You have to coax her through it. But before you coax her through it, you have to validate that her fear is appropriate, normal. It makes sense that you're scared. We, we, we don't want to overstep the fear's dignity of being there. Mm, don't overstep the fear's dignity. Once the fear feels fully loved and appreciated for its many years of work of protecting you from strange falling situations, we're afraid of tall things for a reason and jumping off tall things. So that fear has an intelligence and a dignity and an, um, a beauty. And once you acknowledge that fear and its rightness, then it's willing to give way to a new feeling. That makes a lot of sense. Now, is this something that you only do once or is this a, a practice you can go back to over and over again? I imagine it for some reason, I think if I were to do it, it might take me a few times. Exactly. You have to do it piecemeal. And so I, I really encourage people to digest and process and move through an experience by breathing through the emotion as much as they can till they get to about a six to a seven out of 10 and then take a break and then go in again another time when they feel resourced. And life gives us numerous opportunities to tune into feelings that have been incomplete from the past. Basically, anytime you're triggered past the age of 25, it's probably because it's pointing at an un incomplete feeling from your childhood that is so wanting to complete so that that energy and attention can come back online for you for the rest of your life. Every incomplete feeling in your history is arrested emotions, arrested attention and energy that is not available for your creative output. That makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of, you know, having a broken heart, for example, when it first happens, we can walk down the street and just start crying every, every hour, or maybe I'll just speak for myself. I can just, you know, start crying on the street every hour, but then there, you know, a few weeks go by and it's less. And then a few months go by and you're, you know, whatever, I'm not really crying anymore. And then, you know, next thing I know, you know, you're not really thinking about that anymore, but it takes the going through it and the processing and if our feelings got arrested, it means we never fully got to process them in that way. Yeah, feelings come in waves. And you want to process the wave as it comes. And then not too much. You don't want to dominate your system into, I've got to feel this feeling. You want to honor the ecology of your inner psyche. There's a reason why when it gets over 7 out of 10, overwhelm. 
why you want to pop out and disassociate. It's because it's too scary. But just like going to the gym, it's a muscle. You can build your resilience in tolerating the physical sensations of discomfort, which may cause some sobbing, some shuddering, some shifts in your body. But I don't think I've ever heard of anyone dying from feeling a feeling to completion. But our body doesn't know that because when we were really young, three years old, mommy's yelling, that feeling felt so terrifying, it did feel like we could die. And so it's on pain of death that we don't want to feel our feelings from a memory of when it felt like it was. Yeah. So the practice of validating our inner child and her feelings is going to these micro moments, walk into the feeling, be with the physical sensations, do it to the point where we feel about a six to seven out of 10 in intensity. And then we can disassociate again and come back again until we start to really um, build that muscle and build resilience. Yeah. And feel it's complete. And I just, a little piece in there about how to feel a feeling. If you want to get super granular, you think about something that's triggering to you and you want to close your eyes, take three to five really deep breaths where the exhale is about twice as long as the inhale. This is the fastest way to resource the nervous system that I found and regulate it. And then you want to scan your body on the inside, like as if you're passing a laser through all the layers of your body from top of your head down to your toes. And as you're scanning with that laser of consciousness, you're looking for anywhere in your body that has the most salient physical sensations during the feeling. So you're thinking about a situation with one of your parents, it triggers you, scan your body. Where is that feeling in your body? Throat, nose, neck, shoulders, belly, arms. It'll be hard at first to see where it is because we're not used to creating a cartography of our emotions in our body. But usually you'll start to see that, oh, anger for me is always my throat. Joy shows up in my shoulder blades. Like there's a place in our body where certain feelings always show up and everybody has different places. And I think it's important for us to become cartographers of our own emotional landscapes. And so once you find that sensation in your body that is the most salient when you think about that situation that's triggering, you send, what I do is I send, well, with my eyes closed, I send white light energy towards that area of my body to make it feel warm, welcomed, and loved. And then as it starts to feel loved, I bring my attention to moving a little closer and closer to that area. So if it's in my throat, I'll just pretend I'm moving my consciousness closer and closer to my throat. And then eventually, when I get close enough that it feels safe, I say, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me that I can't see right now? And your body is literally trying to give you information. So what a feeling is, is their messenger sent from the unconscious mind to the conscious mind in the only language the unconscious knows, precognitive, prelingual. The only language that's precognitive and prelingual are sensations. Babies have sensations, but they don't have words and they don't have a sense of cognition yet. So what is the unconscious mind doing? It's sending physical sensations with a message. And the message is contained in a kind of metaphoric gestalt. So when you interview the sensation in your body and you ask it, what is it trying to teach you? What is it trying to show you? Sometimes an image or an idea or an epiphany will come up, like in a dream state. And this is information from your unconscious mind that is extremely important. So important that I would dare to say that that information is the data that will allow your most cutting edge personal development move to happen next. But how do you decipher it? So the information from your unconscious mind will always sound like something that a guru or a prophet would say. 
it'll never say, you idiot, why did you say that? It'll, your unconscious mind is in some way your, your highest self or the self that's connected to all your future selves. And your intuition, your inner unconscious mind is the source of all your intelligence, imagination, and creativity. So when it speaks, you keep asking it. And if it doesn't come that time, you can try it the next time. But usually a visual or a metaphor or an idea will pop into our mind that never has shame, blame, or make wrong. It's an invitation to see something in a more empowered way. So it comes out the way that the guru, the inner guru, our higher self speaks to us is in the form of visuals, metaphors, or ideas. Yeah. That, that contain no make wrong. Yeah, it won't contain any make wrong. And one of the pieces that I forgot earlier is when you're sending white light to the area in your body, before you ask it, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? I actually imagine myself bowing in front of the place in my body. So my throat is where I get angry. So I imagine myself bowing like a little tiny Annie bowing in front of the sensation in my throat as if I'm at the foot of a guru. That sensation, I'm a devotee of it. I'm going to research it. I'm going to honor it. And it's going to speak to me. And it's going to say something profound. And what I'm trying to sell you is that information that's going to come from that sensation is the next step in your personal development where everything in your life is breaking down and is not working. If you get this next step, they all transform. Like that's how valuable the data is. Well, it's a good reason to bow before it then. So is that summarizing the idea of validating the inner child or is there more to be said on this? Well, that's basically the contours of how to feel a feeling in your body, which is closed eyes, interviewing sensations in your body, no talking, no explanations, justifications, blame about why you're angry. The why you're angry is a bootstrap disassociation technique to derail you from being in your body because it was so terrifying. But when you were a little kid, you played with your toy cars or you sang a song when mom and dad were fighting in the kitchen. That's how you disassociated. But as a grown person, your ability to disassociate becomes more sophisticated. And the way most grown-up adults disassociate is they get stuck in the story about the feeling. Let me tell you why I'm angry at my mom. Let me tell you all the reasons, the justifications, the blames. And they mistake that for feeling the feeling. But it's actually just the same as tuning out and playing with your toy cars. So don't fall for that distraction. That's a disassociation. What you want to do is keep, like in meditation, keep bringing your consciousness back to the sensation and interviewing it for its wisdom. This is great. And I think it's so important to really understand that the story, when we're just in the story repeating why we're mad and why we're right and why they're wrong and all of our righteous storylines, that that is actually a disassociation no different from when a little kid is playing with their dolls or their trucks or whatever it is that they do to not feel how horrible things are feeling. It's just like the grown-up version of it. It's just another way to not feel the feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And when we were four playing with toys in the cars, it's a very elegant, beautiful solution for a child's nervous system who doesn't know how to cope with the overwhelm. But as a grown-up adult, we actually have more tools and technologies that if you actually were to breathe into the sensations in your body and give them love and attention, they will dissipate. The feelings are literally saying, pay attention to me. I have something to say. And if you don't pay attention, if you ignore the feeling, they basically get louder and louder and they will continue to get louder until they become OCDs, neuroses, or disease. And alternatively, if we bow before the sensation, bow before the part of us that is sharing that sensation and become a devotee of it, it can literally 
lead us towards the next step in our in our self-development yeah which is extraordinary all right so then what's next so the next thing is becoming a, a researcher and an investigator of your own personal characteristics and starting to track what things you do think what personality traits even what genetic inheritances you got from both of your parents things that you actually like about yourself. So, you know, my, my father loved books. My mother was a chatty person who talked to the neighbor beside her, anyone in an elevator. When I'm talking to someone in an elevator who's a stranger, in real time, I'm while I'm talking to them, I'm remembering, I learned this from my mom. I'm really glad I learned this from my mom. Thank you, mom. I'm footnoting my mom for this particular character trait while I'm doing it in real time. If I'm picking up a book at a bookstore, I remember all the hours spent in bookstores with my dad. And I'm footnoting, I wouldn't probably be doing this right now if it wasn't for my dad influencing me. So it's basically becoming a researcher of things in yourself that you appreciate, admire, or are grateful for, and footnoting them to your parents. Maybe not in real time, that's a little more advanced, but you can start with just writing a list of things about yourself that you have because your mom existed and was the way she was. Sometimes there are things you copied from her. Sometimes there are things she did and you learned not to do that. So you're doing another thing that's even better. Thank God you learned how it looks when she did it that way so you could do something different. So you learned on the back of her fallibility or her crazy. So you want to write a list of things that you appreciate in yourself that you learned or gained from your parents. Then you start noticing them in real time as you move through your life and your reality. And you're footnoting them just to yourself. And then the more advanced ninja move is to start footnoting them to your parents when you see them to Thanksgiving or Christmas. Just mentioning to my mom, hey, you know, I always chat to people in elevators and in Ubers and I have the greatest connections and, you know, you inspired that in me and I love my life better because I do it. I think I'm a better friend, better human, and thank you. Thank you for teaching me to do that. There is no statute of limitations on giving your parents positive feedback on what you love about their influence on you. They will never tire of hearing it. One thing that I like that you talk about is the importance of why that is. You've, you've, you've talked about this in a way that I've never heard before and something you refer to as intergenerational envy. Yes. Okay. Um, parents are human beings just like us. And they have envy, just like we have envy of every other human. If someone has a car we like or a haircut we like or has a body we like or a success level, we feel envy. It's part of the human spectrum of emotion. And as a mother myself, I've literally been tracking and noticing all the emotions I have with my daughter. Everything from, you know, delight and awe to envy and jealousy. Sometimes if she's spending a little too much time with Eben and they're having a little too much wrestlies and I'm not included, I can feel a little jab of jealousy. Like, I want to get in on that. And I don't make my jealousy wrong. I go, that's my inner chimp. Jealousy is part of the pantheon. And... I honor it and I might share it with Evan. I'm feeling a little jealous. Can I join in? And I, I honor the jealousy so it doesn't go underground and become some compulsive driver of suboptimal behavior. Right. Because, because if not, then you could end up trying to sabotage your, uh, your husband's relationship with your daughter, which would not serve anyone in your family. Exactly. And when it's unconscious, you see jealousy, envy, and shame are three emotions that aren't well-received in our culture, so they get marginalized. People are ashamed of them. And so when you're ashamed of something, you hide it and you keep it in secrecy, not just from others, but from yourself. What woman walks around and says, honey, I feel jealous 
when you stare at the waitress. Most women complain about that with a sense of aggression. So jealousy, envy, and shame always masquerade as aggression. And so we'll feel the aggression, but we don't track underneath the aggression to see that it's actually jealousy or envy that's driving the aggression. And if we can be meta to the jealousy and the envy and we can just make it conscious and not un unconscious, intentional rather than compulsive, that's how you get mastery over it. Part of it also comes from the fact that in our society, we're made to feel as though jealousy, envy, and shame are wrong. And so then, but like you said, that's just our chimp. We're literally 99% chimp. And what is it that you guys say that the, the chimp is six times stronger than the human and so are our chimp tendencies? Is that what you, how many? Yeah, well, pound to pound, I think they're nine times stronger than a human. Actually, I don't know, six, between six or nine. But in an arm wrestle, pound for pound, a chimp's going to take you down every time. So your inner chimp is hard to arm wrestle with your Johnny-come-lately cognitive mind that just showed up recently in evolution. Yeah. So I think that's so brilliant, the way you guys put it. And instead of feeling wrong about these things, just say, look, this is what we're made of. And these are just the instincts that are going to come up. And that's just what's true. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just what is. And when we make it wrong, we just put neuroses on top of it. Exactly. And then those feelings don't feel like they are, deserve the microphone, deserve to show up. They're going to get in trouble. And then they, and when they feel like they don't deserve the microphone and get in trouble, they show up in other ways as aggression yeah. and cause all kinds. And then not only cause issues with the people that you love, but with your kids or your parents, whichever it is. They get insidious and they go underground and hide their tracks. But we're talking about intergenerational envy. And I started by saying, I feel envy, jealousy, even with my daughter. Um, I've noticed little shards of envy come up when I see her completely fully self-expressed and jumping around the living room and putting her whole body into a dance. And I'm like, I've turned into this old, well, not that bad, but more cynical, crutchety, like I'm not as flamboyant. And I'm like, damn, I want to be like that. And I can feel the envy and I don't make it wrong. And I, because I'm making it conscious, it doesn't show up in an underhand comment, like love settle down or, you know, you're making too much noise or, you know, um, Often our parental gestures towards making our children be quiet or calmer are actually subtle moments of envy where our lack of aliveness is being highlighted by our child's open expression. And we don't track that we're feeling actually envious of the aliveness of our child. And so it goes underground and we say, settle down. You're making too much noise. Stop dancing. It's disturbing me. But that's why it's disturbing you. Yeah. And in my situation, it doesn't come out in exactly that way. It happens more with my father who had a very rough childhood with two parents that were really abusive and um, he grew up poor. And so he gave me this very comfortable life and they never laid a hand on me. And so I think in some ways the intergenerational envy comes through just a frustration that I had it so much easier than him. Yeah. And another way to say that is on some level, your father knows he's not just your father. He's like, a human being with another human being. There's like a namaste between parent and child at some level of their being. And he knows that you got a better life in some ways than he did. Much better. And the young part of him is like, rawr, I wish I had that. Totally. It does make a lot of sense. And I've always understood it. But when we're little and those things come up, they can turn into parental wounds, which is, I think, the reason why you talk so much about tracking the beautiful things that we got from our parents and then sharing it with them as a way of helping with the intergenerational envy that comes up. Yeah, so the, it's, it's all a technology for managing the egos of our parents. 
because pretty much by the time you're 30, if your parents have done a really good job, then you will have superseded them in terms of your consciousness, possibly even your financial success, your status in the world, and just how smart you are. That's, that's the mark of great parents. Now, parents aren't taught how to process the remarkably discomforting feeling of watching your children go beyond you. No one takes them aside and teaches them this. And so they're left struggling with this alone in a culture that marginalizes jealousy and envy. So parents aren't even taught to track that this feeling that they're having about their children going beyond them is envy. And so it goes underground. The reason I want us to track what we got from our parents that we're grateful for, that we appreciate it or admire, is because it it's a way of managing that heartbreak in the parent for not having all the things that the child has. And on some level, if parents have done a good job, they really, really admire their child. They really want their child's love and approval because some part of their being knows that they've been transcended by a being that's now more conscious than them. And very few children realize that their parents actually want their approval. Right, because we're always looking for our parents' approval. We want them to, we want them to acknowledge us. Exactly. But past about 30 years old, it actually reverses. And one hack I teach my clients is to think about your parents as needy teenagers who want to know that you appreciate, admire, or like them, that they're not turned into this old fogey has-been, and that they might still have some value and utility to you. So giving them honest, authentic feedback on things you see in yourself that you love and you admire and that has contributed to your success, and then footnoting your parents to their face, offsets the intergenerational envy that they will feel if they've done a great job at parenting and have watched you go beyond them and kind of left them in the dust. And another way just I talk about it is you want to see, you want to talk to your parents as if they were a hand and the hand was wearing a glove and you are the glove on their hand coming back and giving them uh, praise for all the contribution they've made to you. So, Because they were the skeleton. Exactly. It's on their shoulders that you're standing with your greatness. And when you footnote the people who led to your greatness and they know they contributed to it, it makes for a more equal and balanced relational dynamic because then they get to be a part of it instead of thinking that you went and took it and, you know, and like a, like you being the bratty teenager that runs off and doesn't even call or come visit. Um, instead they get to feel as though everything that's wonderful about you, everybody realizes, including you, that it's because of them and everyone can enjoy it together. Exactly. If there's a best selling book that everybody loves as an academic, brilliant book to be a footnote in that book, is pretty damn cool. So, we don't want to fake the footnotes, but we want to actually find real things in our life that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for either our mom or our dad and tell them. That's really sweet. Do you, I know that you can really relate to anyone listening who has a parent who's passed. Yeah. And you said that there is no statute of limitations on sharing this with their parents, but some people won't be able to do that during their lifetimes with their parents. Absolutely. Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, well, my hack around that is even though we've lived our whole lives with our parents while they were alive, we never actually met our parents. All we know is the parents in our mind. There's the mom in your mind, and then there's the mom in the world. And you've never actually met the mom in the world because you've always seen her through the filter of the mom version in your mind. 
So the mom in your mind is actually the one you have the relationship with. So you can do that work with that version of that mom in your mind, whether they're alive or not. And writing a letter to a deceased parent with these acknowledgements can do a world of wonder. Depends on your metaphysical spiritual view, but I think on some level of reality, the information gets to their soul or their being. But even if you don't believe that, the part of you that is tracking the mom in your mind will receive the information, the feedback, and it completes a loop. Um, our, our parents know that they're responsible for our greatness at some level. And what they really want to hear is their child knowing that as well. So once you know it, you've done what, you've done what they wanted, whether they're there to see or not, it's still really done. Exactly. And telling your parents that you love your life. Just, I love my life. Thank you for my life. Because that's what they gave you is a magnificent gift. And I want to be clear, you don't owe your parents anything because they gave you your life. As a parent myself, I can test, attest to this. When you love your children, it feels like a, mag, a, a wonderful privilege to have been their parent. It's not that you owe me because I was your parent. It's we met, we chose each other, we incarnated, we did this dance called parent-child, and we leave and there's nothing owed on either side, but you can still be grateful for the gift of your life. So complicated though. <laughs> it is. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Oh, so many things. What I think is also important in there is to, to love our lives. Right. And that part of all of this, um, because I think the times that have been the hardest for my mother and I, my mom and I are great right now, but the times that she and I have had it the hardest is when she was afraid I didn't love my life. Or when she thought, you know, especially when I was coming out, it wasn't that she doesn't like gay people that made her so mad. It was her fear that I wasn't going to love my life or that I wasn't going to have a good life. And, it, and she used to say to me, it's like watching you fall off a cliff because she sought, thought that, you know, she had given me this opportunity to have this totally charmed life where I could have just had it so easy. And yet I was taking this path that was so much harder and it really broke her heart. So um, within the crediting them and letting them know how much you love your, how much we love our lives is also the responsibility to get ourselves to a place where we do love our life. Yeah. And that's your existential responsibility to yourself and then secondarily to your parents. And as good parents, the best thing we can show our children is how to love our life, not their life, our life, because they copy us. And so parents who live life that they, on um, externally, it's obvious that they are loving their life, that you're training your child to do the most important thing with theirs. So what advice do you have for parents who we know they want approval, but they're just mean, you know, they're not, they're not being nice. How do we then, you know, cause some of us have mean parents, some they're parents that aren't nice out there. Yeah. And so they're not nice because they don't know another way to be. It's not like they have a path in the road called be a great parent, be nice and be mean. And they're like, I'm going to choose being mean. They only know the way they know. And remember I told you to treat your parents like teenagers. What if you could treat your parents literally like a tantruming five-year-old? When a tantruming five-year-old is mean and says, I don't love you. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Are you appalled? Do you like sit down and sob on the sidewalk? Are you like, okay, they're being mean because that's all the tools they have right now. And literally, I think that's what happens to parents. They regress down to a five-year-old when they're super triggered. They're not as advanced as you with as you without all your self-regulation techniques and your meditation and your ways of being calm in your nervous system. They just lose their shit. And so what 
what there is for us to do as children is to recognize in our in that moment our parents have regressed to a child and holding a grudge against a child for, for not doing something they don't know how to do is like yelling a kid yelling at a kid for not knowing calculus when they're seven it just doesn't even make sense it's when a parent is mean to a child or to us it's not because they um won't be nice it's because they can't be nice there's a difference when someone bumps into you on the street and then they sneer at you that's one thing if a blind person bumps into you with his cane you don't get upset why don't you get upset right because you know that they are doing the best they can with the resources they have and the senses and that they have blind. and they're, they're blind. blind they're blind and so we don't get we don't judge them according to the same criteria that you would if someone who's not blind and if you've left your parents in the dust by the time you're 30, most of the things they do when they're upset will seem juvenile, trivial, and infantile to you. And so you want to treat that part of them the way you would treat a child, with a kind of accommodating reverence for their suboptimal toolkit. And if they were treating us that way even when we were little, they had a suboptimal toolkit even back then. Yes. And I don't want to go straight there. I want to honor the part of you that's fucking mad that they had a suboptimal toolkit when you were two years old and it damaged you. You have a right to be mad. Yeah, because that sucks. That sucks. That that sucks. Just sucks that you got stuck with parents with a suboptimal toolkit when other people have these great parents and, you know, and all these other things could be great and it wasn't. Yes. And uh, a woo-woo reframe that I like to use when I used to get really stuck with my mom is to try on that on some esoteric level, I actually chose my parents to give me a particular kind of gymnasium against which to build musculature that would add to my dharmic purpose and make me extraordinary. So it's almost like before you're born, you say to the universe, universe, I want to be amazing at ABC in my life. And the universe is like, okay, in order to make you amazing at ABC, I need to have you born to these two parents where you'll have this amount of hardship and heartbreak. And on the back of that hardship and heartbreak, you're going to build these amazing compensatory tools that are going to be your gifts. And this is the easiest, least painful way I could get you these gifts. And so that frame, what it does is it turns all the crazy shit you had to go through in your childhood into a dojo or a gymnasium in which you built your muscles to become the kind of person that could turn that stuff around and love your life. Beautiful. So we covered validating our inner, our inner child that had this sucky situation. We covered tracking things that we learn from our parents that we can appreciate them so that we can footnote them in our greatness to start healing that intergenerational envy. What else? For lineage wounds, I think I want to just mention that as a parent, and I'm sure this is true for all parents, as a parent, I feel the burden of all the habits and unconsciousness and compulsions and wounds coming from behind my lineage, from my, both my parents' line, trying to get through me onto my daughter. I can feel the compulsions. I can feel a part of me when she's really tantruming wants to hit her. I've never hit my child. My mom used to- But you feel it in your hand? Feel the aggression in my chimp animal Annie hand. Wow. And I can- and I know any parent who's really honest will say that you can feel that sometimes. What I do with that is really important. First of all, I don't shame it or make it wrong. I go, hello, chimp. Hello, lineage wound. You, you survived this far in the evolution. You must have had some adaptive quality. 
And I'm going to consciously make a choice about whether this is the right move based on what I know now. So what it feels like as a parent is like a tsunami is coming from your back, trying to get onto your child. And no matter how you try to block the wave of crazy, it's going to slip through your fingers and through your toes and through the crack in your legs. And you're going to do the best you can to not get it on your kids. And some will get on. And it's heartbreaking to see it get on. And you do your best to, 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 to protect them. So when you take that visual and you imagine your parents doing that for you, Lord knows what they grew up in and what they wanted to make sure you didn't get. And the things we bitch about as kids are those drops of water coming through the fingers and the toes that they couldn't scramble to protect us from. And when I make that visual, it what it does is it has me be grateful for whatever they protected me from, which I can't even know. And appreciate that it's really hard as a parent to, to be in real time holding back that tsunami, but it is the, it is the work of a parent and I invite us to do it. Um, but to give yourself the room to be fallible and to be imperfect and to be good enough. Yeah, that's a really beautiful image. And even if you think about an actual tsunami and then we stack together every single one of our ancestors, all arm in arm link, like literally standing on each other's heads and whatever, trying to create whatever sort of puzzle all together with their bodies to block the tsunami, there's still a whole bunch of water that's going to come through and pour all over us. And um, even and then really seeing them really trying their best to hold back that wave, but 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 no amount of bodies clumped together would really block it. It's, it's an extraordinary image. Yeah, and you know that image that, that, that's quote. I'm if I've seen beyond, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. As the child of a family lineage, I think of myself kind of like Yertle the turtle, where they're all stacked up. I see myself on the shoulders of my mom and dad, who are on the shoulders of their parents, on the shoulders back, 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 all the way. And thank you, all of you, for holding me up so that I could rise above and have this life and interact with reality with so much power. And I, I never want to not give credit to the, the lineage and the gurus that have came before me, imperfect and fallible as they were. They're still holding me up. Beautiful. But we were not at the part yet where we were forgiving them. Well, before you get to forgiveness, you have to honor the anger, the frustration, the resent, the heartbreak. Then you have to do something that's kind of cheeky that I've not heard anyone talk about, but it's something I've been practicing, which is deconflating the pain from the blame. Hmm. So yes, mom did this and I felt heartbroken and it hurt me. My pain is real. My pain is legit and I wish I didn't have to feel it and I'm angry about it. And that's totally valid. Is my mom to blame for my pain? Most of us conflate anger, pain, and blame all together. And I'm just trying to differentiate and deconflate pain, heartbreak, and blame. Literally, if you get your hair cut at a nice salon and you walk out and it starts to rain and it gets ruined, you can't blame the hair salon. You can't blame the weather. What are you going to blame? Like, uh, it happened. It's an act of God. Your hair got wet and the, and, and the dew is gone. When I start to look at my parents' behavior as the weather, like it's what's so, it's what happened. And it wasn't because they had a portfolio of options and they chose the worst one to hurt their children with. They were doing the best with whatever option array they had available to them in the, in the moment. So what I do is I take out the blame and honor the pain. Mom, will you witness this pain that I felt? I'm frustrated and I'm angry and I wish it never happened and it broke my heart. 
But if you can do that in front of your mother without you, and it's your fault, mom, and you're bad and wrong, and you fucked up my life, you can take the blame out. Most mothers can handle it. It's so, so great what you're saying, because in the times that I think I've wanted to be witnessed in my pain, I haven't necessarily known how to communicate it without the blame. And so my parents only get defensive when I'm just trying to communicate my reality and then they take it as blame and I haven't known necessarily how to explain that this isn't blame, um, who they were and what they had available was just the weather. Yeah, it's, it was what was up. Um, I think you can just call the shot. You can say, hey, I don't want to blame you. I want you to just listen to my pain and be with it and witness it. And then we can move through this. But I don't know how to do that. So I might say something that is a tacky or shamey or blamey or make wrong. And I'm going to do my best to hygienically clean it out. But I love you and we're going to get through this. And I love you no matter what. And between now and the end of this conversation, I love you now. You're always going to be my mom and I love you forever. And I'm grateful for my life. At the end of this conversation, you're my mom. I love you. And I'm grateful for my life. I love you forever. But in the middle, can you give me permission to just do my little epileptic seizure of heartbreak and know that I know it's not your fault. I know you're doing the best you can. And I just need my pain to be witnessed. And I don't want to have to micromanage how I say it. Will you listen to me? That is, that is so genius. I love the way you say things. You, I don't know where it comes from, how you get these downloads, but it's absolutely awesome. And I've never heard anything like it. I absolutely love that. That is so powerful. Literally, whoever is listening to this, just rewind, write down that script word for word and use it because that is genius right there. Thank you. It's also great in conflict with your romantic partner. If you need to express a complaint or be frustrated and you just say, listen, I love you. We're going to make it through this. And I just need to express my anger, my frustration, my complaint, and we're going to be okay. And at the end of this conversation, I love you. We're going to be okay. But in the middle, do I have permission to just say it how it comes up, knowing that I love you more than I'm angry and that I ultimately don't blame you. I know you're doing the best you could, but I need to be witnessed in this. And they can handle it as long as you're not saying fucker and it's your fault and you're the reason I have all these feelings I don't want to feel. Because the truth is you chose your partner to highlight all your unfelt feelings from your childhood by triggering them again in exactly the same way so that you can complete them and finish them and get back all the energy and attention that's being locked up in that loop. Because that's so who we're attracted to are people who... We're attracted to the best looking, smartest, most intelligent version of the parent whose love we had to earn the most. Whichever parent you struggled to feel loved with more, that's the incomplete attachment piece that then makes an imprint in you. You're going to hunt down through reality for a smart, intelligent, attractive person that simulates that particular brand of Owie that was still left incomplete with your dad and replay it again so that in this this time the movie scene plays, the hope is that you get the love you never got the first time. And, and in the right relationship, you will get that love, not only because your partner will show up as a more attentive and attuned person than your parent, but because you will be able to express your needs in a more cogent way than when you were a child and ask for the exact kind of love that would nourish that wound. Both you will have developed and your partner is more advanced than your parent. So the second run at the scene, usually if you pick the right partner, offers you that incomplete love loop that is called your attachment wound. Awesome. So 
So now we were moving towards towards forgiveness, but the step before forgiveness is deconflating the the pain from the blame. And really doing it takes some work to get there because in our culture, when you're angry, you're upset and it's their fault. They're all in one thing. And so you have to actually do the hard work in your brain to see your parents or whoever you're fighting with as the cutting edge state of their being doing the best they can to love you and getting it kind of wrong. And then is that the path to the forgiveness? So after you deconflict the blame, you're well poised and ready to then actually see authentically, oh, my mom, my dad were literally doing the best they can to keep the tsunami back while pay the rent, hold their shit together, manage their own existential angst and keep us alive. And you know what? They did. They kept me alive and not just alive, but thriving and flourishing. Thank you for my life. And if we're not thriving and flourishing, it's now our responsibility because we're not victims in this lifetime anymore. Now we have all the resources available to go and, and take steps, right? Yes. One of the places people get stuck is blaming their parents for the places they haven't been able to succeed in their life. And while I can see the utility of that frame, I can see why it alleviates you from the responsibility of taking charge of the current state of affairs. It handicaps you because it takes the power out from your hands and puts them somewhere else in another person's hands. And it's a disempowering stance because if it is your parents' fault why you can't do X, Y, Z, then you're really fucked. (laughs) How do you get the power back? You have to at some point go, Yes, my parents did X, Y, Z. And in the face of that, what can I do to shift my relationship to reality so I can have more of what I want? And getting your life to a place where you like it feels like a good first move before you try to complete all the wounds with your parents. You actually have to like your life to be able to like the creators of your life. We'll have to do a whole other one on how to like our lives more. And for anyone who hasn't already from listening to me talk about them before checked out Evan and Annie's work, there's no better place to, to look, to start than to go explore what it is that they teach for getting to that place. But, um, but we're still on healing the parental wound and that all makes a lot of sense. But is there anything that you can say to people whose parents won't have a relationship with them because they're queer? Yeah, let's see. Cultural memes are changing in every generation about what's acceptable, what's appropriate, what's right, what's wrong. And so getting that if if your parent can't accept that you're queer, you have to get that in the context they came from, they don't know how to do it. They, They haven't got the cutting edge cultural technology to see that change and innovation and self expression and I don't know if their parents are religious and have religious beliefs about queerness being suboptimal or whatever their stories are. I feel like parents who can't accept their children's queerness are operating from like dinosaur level means. They're ancient old frames. And it's like those little old ladies that still use dial phones Like, how do we take away her dial phone? She doesn't even know what to do with an iPhone. And I feel like the counterpart to the the dial phone is the cultural memes in the parent's mind. 
They just don't have the ability to transcend those dogmas. And it's, you know, it's like getting a fundamentalist person to, to change their religious belief. And for some people, it's linked to religion, but maybe it's linked to some morality or some other thing that they don't know how to see beyond. Remember I told you, you've gone beyond your parents? This is a place where you've gone beyond your parents. How do you get parents to understand, um, I don't know, what's something that we all do? Like, I don't know, an app on our phone that's super high tech. Or how do you get your parents to understand podcasting? <laughs> but gender fluidity... Um, homosexuality, these are cutting edge forms of human expression, in my opinion. And I am entranced enough by innovation that I welcome it and I feel excited by it. And I really want to confer that to my daughter. But we come from generations that were, you know, quite conservative and were wary of innovative cultural um, behaviors. And so I, I think what I'm trying to get at is if you can get the cultural context from which your parents was com were coming from, you'll get that it has nothing to do with you not being lovable or good. It's because you're so modern, advanced, and innovative that you kind of left them in the dust. And you may never get their support. But what I would do if I was working with someone, I would ask them how they know their parents love them. And there's always a way that we, we, can, we just know our parents loved us. They did X, Y, Z. And then imagine the part of their parent that was, the, that was not wounded, that was the highest, most extraordinary, magnificent part of your parent, the part that you know loves you. If you could talk to that part and describe what your reality was, they would accept you. And so you almost have to envision in your mind a version of your parents that doesn't exist and be in rapport with that magnificent version of them that's in your imagination rather than the, the real one. It's almost like you do the work for them and you just imagine if they weren't wounded, if they weren't brainwashed by religion and conservatism, the part of them that loved me would have really tried to understand how my reality is equally as valid as theirs. And you have that conversation with the more magnificent version of them in your mind in order to get that piece of love fulfilled. Yeah. I love the idea of searching our lives for the evidence of where our parents showed that they loved us, the things that they did that really allowed us to, or that the things that they did that really landed for us as love. And then generalize and extrapolate from that into the domains where they sucked. And for some people, the parents still suck and won't speak to them or won't allow them into their lives or constantly make it hard. And it could be really, really heartbreaking. And Sometimes with some parents, not just because they don't accept your queerness, but they have schizophrenia, they have some other disorder, personality disorder. There's a lot of reasons why we can't forge a more healthy relationship with our parents because they're, they've checked out in some way. It's important for us to fall in love with our life. And there's a frequency with which you want to interact with your parents that allows you to still love your life and love them. It's almost like you want to imagine that you have a PR agent for your parent in your mind. And you listen to that PR agent telling you how frequently and in what way to interact with your parents so that the PR for that parent stays good in your mind and you honor it. And if it's once a year you see your parents and you like them and twice a year you start to hate them, then that's the frequency of interaction that you would want to organize. You're the one setting the tone of frequency and format of interaction. You don't just do it out of obligation because mom wants you to. You don't just show for Thanksgiving because you should. I don't believe in shoulds. Shoulds are coulds with shame smeared on top. 
I don't believe in shooting with family. You want to do anything that comes from a delight in your heart to do with them. And anything other than that is you are doing obligation and builds resent. It actually takes down the PR of them in your mind and reduces your own self-esteem anytime you do something that breeds resent. So hanging out with your parents at frequencies and in forms of interaction that don't nourish your sense of self and aliveness is not healthy for you. And shouldn't be done. And shouldn't be done. No, you, I mean, literally you're the cutting edge time capsule of the family consciousness. I feel like resources need to be going forward into lineage, not backwards. What about people who feel a sense of responsibility for taking care of their parents? Well, responsibility is something that edifies and dignifies you when you do it. Obligation is something you're doing to mitigate guilt, um, assuage shame, and builds resent. I don't, I don't want anyone to do anything that makes them hate themselves or their parents more. But if we take care of our parents, if we're responsible for our parents in a way that brings us more self-esteem and inner satisfaction, then it's good. Yes, and that's the thing to track. If you're doing anything, going to someone's birthday party, saying yes to an invitation, anything you're doing that doesn't have neutral to positive delight, I mean, especially if, it's, if you have a choice, if I, I'm just saying, I'm a parent. I would never want my daughter to show up at my bedside if I was sick, unless it was a delight for her to do so. I don't want it out of guilt. I don't want it because she owes me. I don't want it, oh, I gotta go see my mom. I never want that. And any self-regarding parent wants their child to love them of their own accord, not out of guilt and obligation. I mean, there may be parents who act that way, but I think those are wound-driven behaviors. I also want to just rewind to this idea of why to have the PR agent in our mind. It's not because our parents, because we owe it to our parents. It's actually, I think from your perspective, although I'd love for you to flush it out more, it's because it helps us love our own lives more. It, is that it, right? Yes. It helps us love our own lives. And the PR agent is managing the relationship esteem between you and your parents. Every relationship is an entity and it has its own self-esteem. If you're doing things for your parents out of obligation, it reduces the self-esteem of your relationship with that parent. It reduces your self-esteem. It breeds resent. And ultimately, it brings your parents' self-esteem down too, in your own mind and theirs. And just to like rewind, part of, part of like the original premise for this conversation was that working on our parental wounds is the highest leverage work we can do for ourselves in terms of all of our relationships. So again, another reason for that PR the more that we're improving that relationship, it improves all relationships. Yeah. Right before my mom died, um, I asked her this, like not before, maybe a year before I just sat her down one day and I said, mom, we've gone through a lot together and you've done things for me. I've done things for you. Do you feel like I owe you anything? Is there anything left? Do you feel like I owe you anything from my life? And she, she just looked at me. And she was kind of taken aback and she said, absolutely not. It was a privilege to be your mother. And I think every mother coming from their highest self and their non-wounded self would want to have that conversation with their child and answer the same way. And so your mother, for some people out there, you might not be able to have this conversation with your mother, but I want you to know there is a part of your mother somewhere beyond the wounds that would have wanted to say that. You owe me nothing. It was a privilege to be your parent. So sometimes we have to say it for them in our own mind if they're not able to.
Because you'd be surprised. I thought my mom would say, actually, you know, I spent 20 years. I thought she would. We're su- you'd be surprised how much our parents want us to not be burdened by their obligations. And giving them a chance to actually unburden that from you and to say, you don't owe me anything. And you can, they don't owe you anything. You don't owe them anything. And you can still be grateful for your life. That's beautiful. I love everything that comes out of your mouth. I do have the firm belief that you should be followed around with a recording device most of the times you open your mouth. So <laughs> um, I love it. Is there, is there anything that we need to complete here? Is there anything further on this topic that you think? No, I just want to summarize again the process of healing the parental wound. And I wanted to start with it's normal to have frustrations. And we want to dignify and honor and give a microphone to those frustrations and resents and heartbreaks before we go to any kind of transcending them. Transcend means include, so you have to include. So first you honor your heartbreak. And we talked about feeling feelings. There's going to be a lot of feeling your feelings around your issues with your parents. And there was one step we didn't touch on, but I want to make it explicit. Before you deconflate the the pain from the blame, there's a step where you have to actually mourn the parent you never had. You have to actually get, okay, that mom that I wanted, that I dreamt of, that I somehow secretly am still dreaming of because I'm still upset when she does the same old thing, which indicates some part of me thinks the great mom that I dreamed of is coming someday. Right, because we, we, we relive that pattern. We almost wish it would be different, and then the same thing happens and we get re-triggered. So the fact that we even brought it to the place where we were going to relive the pattern shows that there's that we're still wishing for the impossible. Exactly, that hope. And so there's a moment where I had to mourn the mother I never had. And it was a very difficult place to get to. I really fought it. How do you do it? I had to imagine the mom that I dreamt of wishing I had dying. Not, not the real mom. That future, that possibility, that dream, that fantasy. I had to imagine it dying in my mind. I just had to see it. It's like a... It's like someone telling you like a hard truth that you can't flinch away from. I had to tell it to myself. And actually a friend had to say it to me. He sat me down and he said, um, Annie, the mom you have, she's cooked. She's, she may have a little filigree, little development points, but she, her cognitive ability, her emotional technology is cooked. That's the best it's going to get. And you're never going to have that mom. And I just burst into tears. I actually had to have someone say it from the outside. I had to be told she's never coming. Did you ask this friend to to give you that talk? No, I went to the friend going, I fucking can't stand my mom right now. And I'm mad, 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 which is implicitly saying I expect her to be better. I expect her to show up. We're at a self-help seminar when this happened. I expected her to learn everything and come find me in the corner and be super mom. (laughs) Like, how ridiculous does that sound? (laughs) And so... And my mom's been through everything, landmark, like I sent her through every self-help course so that to think that at some point she's just going to show up and be like the new mom was so naive that he could see me tortured by that delusion and he needed to emancipate me. And so he slapped me with this, your mom's cooked. She's never going to be that version. She's never coming. And you, you survived. It's okay, but you have to let go of that fantasy. And As soon as I held that truth and burst into tears, I started to work like a muscle and practicing 
I'm never going to get that mom. Once you realize you're never going to get that fantasy mom, what happens is you start to appreciate the mom you have because you've given up the fantasy, the delusion. And you start to go, okay, so this is it. This is actually it. This is my mom. This is my dad. And you deconflate the blame and the pain. And you see how they were just like the weather. It's just what's so. It's not that they are trying to hurt you. It's they didn't know another way. And over time, the resent, which is like acid building up in your body, starts to dissipate. And you just see your parents as fallible, suboptimal, and the reason you're alive. Where all of the things that we achieve in life, we can footnote them in our greatness. Yes. It's beautiful. Well, I've really learned a lot from you about this more than from anyone else I've ever heard. So I'm so grateful that I got to share this here. Um, you know, you're one of my favorite people and my heroes. So thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to more great conversations. But before you go, I know that you and Eben are doing some great stuff. So can you tell us what you're excited about and where people can go to find you? And um, I'm really looking forward to all the new stuff you're going to be putting out there for the world to enjoy. So, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, my website, there's a lot of free stuff on there. It's AnnieLala.com, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A.com. I mean, we've got everything on there from fights between me and my husband on stage at a seminar. And it was real, right? Oh, yeah, real fights. <laughs> Trying to demonstrate how we fight by having a real fight on stage. And so there's, there's lots of stuff on my website. Sign up for my newsletter. You can get all, all my latest ideas. But what's really exciting is my husband and I are launching a new brand together called Love Dojo. And it's going to be us teaching together on relationships, on collaboration, on all the things we are interested in as a couple. And one of the things we really admire are evolutionary couples who are making changes in the world with their relationship. So the relationship adds value and contribution. And so that's what we're up to for this next phase. Keep an eye out for Love Dojo and more stuff from us. You'll hear me continue to be quoting these two humans all the time because Evan and Annie are extraordinary and you guys set the gold standard for uh, personal development and growth work, in my opinion. And I'm so grateful for you. Yes, thank you. And hopefully for true love too. And also for true love. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're one of my favorite humans ever. Thank you so much for being you. I'm so grateful. Thank you, sweetheart. And now I would love to hear from you. We covered a whole lot of things in this interview, but I'm curious, what of the many things we spoke about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then there are tons of free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to find your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. 
Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you know can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. 